Father, I just thank you, Lord, for the precious gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Who, though he existed in the very form of God, did not equate being God something that he demanded, but he emptied himself. If he did, why don't we? So Lord, I pray that as we continue to worship you and your word, that this would be a time of emptying of ourselves, that we would be so full of you. Come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Just come. And you will find rest for your soul. May we find our soul rest in you alone. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. I'm going to tell you a little story about how I came to be in ministry. And I'm not talking vocationally, I'm talking practically. In the fall of 2001, I had been a believer for about eight years had been a school teacher for about 10 in the Peoria School District, had been married for about five years to my beautiful bride. We had a three-year-old daughter and a one-year-old daughter. And I was at Sunrise Mountain High School. I'd been teaching and counseling and coaching, and, and I'd been blessed enough to be discipled by a couple of men over the, over the couple years prior to that. Skip Ast, who's the pastor at West Valley Bible, one of the churches that planted us, and then Mark Martin, who had been my pastor from more or less the time I came to faith until we went to help out at West Valley Bible. And I'd, I'd grown a lot, but I had a long way to go, but I was finding a stirring in my soul. In 2001, in September, I was sitting down in my little guidance counselor office, and, and a gentleman named Brian Beltramo, who now I think heads up FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, for the state of Arizona, I used to call him my Barnabas, and he would come in and just encourage me. And I remember looking at him and going, Brian, I have no idea why God has me here. Two weeks later, on September 11th of 2001, two planes flew into two towers in New York and one into the Pentagon and one plowed itself into a field in Pennsylvania, and everyone's world changed, including a couple thousand students at Sunrise Mountain High School. And so a couple weeks after that, as our campus was still being rocked and people were insecure and the students were worried and fretting, four girls, a couple of them I'd had as students in the past, came to me and they said, hey, we know you're a Christian and we want to start rallying the Christians on this campus to do something. So they started a group called CCC. It still exists today. It's on other campuses. It's a Christian club on campus. We weren't the most creative bunch in the world. That's what we came up with. But I'll be honest, when, I first, when they first came into my office and they asked me that, I, my first instinct, my answer to God's call on my life and ministry was, even after I had just said, I don't know why God has got me here, God is showing me, here's why I have you here, Doug. And my first response is, no way. 
I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I have a full-time job, I can't, I'm coaching two sports, I can't, I've, I just finished my first master's and I'm in the middle of working on my second master's in leadership, I can't, I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old and the one-year-old was not the spirit-filled person you saw standing up here just a few minutes ago, she was just not. And our hands were more than full, and we were overwhelmed, and yet God said, you just got to do it. And so I stepped out in faith, and I started to trust him for it, and I was horrible at it. For the first year, I felt like I was driving mules instead of leading sheep. I was allowed to disciple the leadership kids. I couldn't speak at the, at the large group meetings because of my position at the school, but I, I, had, I could disciple the leadership kids. But even getting the leadership, leadership kids excited and going was like driving cattle. And, one, and, and about a year later, God showed me. He said, Doug, you're not teaching them. Don't get frustrated with them. Show them. And I'm like, that's all I do. I've given up hours, God, of, of my time and my family's time to meet with them and to talk to them. And what are we doing next week? And who's leading this? And what youth group leader are we going to have come speak? And all these different things. And he's like, Doug, that's not what I'm talking about. Show them me. So we changed everything. And from that point on, we didn't spend any of our leadership time talking about the meetings that were coming up that we used to spend an hour on every week just to make it happen. We spent no time on that. All we did was talk about Jesus Christ. We did book studies together. We did Bible studies together. We did discipleship like Chris talked about. And, and all of a sudden, these kids started to grow, and the volume of these kids on the campus started to grow. And before you knew it, instead of having to drive to try to find five or six kids to lead the club, we had 40 kids signing up for, for, to be just to be leaders in the club for the six spots we had open because of graduating seniors. What was the difference? The difference was they just beheld the beauty of Jesus Christ. It changed who they were. It changed how those students identified themselves. And other students on our campus went, I don't know what they've got, but I want it. And at one point, we had a couple hundred students in the gymnasium at lunchtime for a worship service. We have 120 kids show up at 6.30 in the morning for a Bible club meeting. Guys, many of you have teenagers. Only God can get 120 kids up at 6.30 in the morning for a Bible club meeting. But here was my problem. I mean, back to, to how I got started in this. My problem was the reason I was so hesitant at the beginning, the reason I was so pitiful at it in the middle, and the reason I'm still learning today is because most of my failures then and now have to do with the fact that I'm getting my identity from the wrong place. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. He can, and he will. And so today what we're going to talk about is victory and assurance, because where we get our identity affects everything about our lives. And where we get our identity affects everything about our lives. I'm only going to scratch the surface on what victory and assurance looks like. That's why it's so important, as Jeff talked about, and even as uh, Chris modeled, that, you, that you, if you don't have a toolkit, get a toolkit, be in it, just read through it, do the activities, do the daily readings, um, and, and watch and see how the Lord doesn't grow you through that process as he fixes your mind more on eternity. 
And then also how he will cross your paths. With, it's, it's funny, I was having conversations this last week with people, and, it's, and, and what we would read that morning in our daily readings, which had been planned out from whenever I wrote the toolkit, it was like somebody would cross their paths that day who needed to hear that passage. That's a part of how, and, and that affirmed, not only that only blessed the person that they shared with, but it affirmed their faith in going, man, God really is orchestrating my life. So here's today's question that we're going to look at today for, as, and hopefully have an answer for. How does knowing we're his help? How does knowing we're his help? And I'm not talking, obviously the biggest way is because we know we're saved and we can spend eternity with him. But I'm talking like day-to-day, just shoe leather, feet on the ground, our boots on the ground. How, do we, how does knowing that we're really believing that we're his how does that help? How does our assurance of our salvation inform everything about our faith walk? How does, the, how does the fact that we are victorious affect how we not only see the world and the news headlines, but how we interact in those? How does it keep us from losing hope? So let's look at our first point. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter is towards the end of your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2, as Jeff said, we don't teach a topic, we teach a text, and this text will not touch on everything about this topic. That's what the rest of the readings are for. But we're going to look at the first point that Peter's going to make in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. God adjusts our appetite. When we know we're his, he adjusts our appetite. So look at, look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, okay, we've got to stop didn't get very far. Why? Because whenever we see therefore, we ask, why is the therefore, therefore? Now, you, you'll, be, you'll be encouraged. The next couple of weeks, passages that we're going to look at do not have therefores in them. So you won't have to hear that at least for a couple of weeks. But we have to ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? Well, I believe that if you go back and you look, it's, it's generally for what was written right above it. Look at verses 22 and 23 of chapter 1. Peter says this, since you have, in obedience to the truth, that's what we're going to talk about next week, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, that's what we talked about last week, fervently love one another from the heart. Now get this. This is, this is the therefore. For you have been born again. For you have been born again. For you have been born again. Not a seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. Therefore, therefore what? Therefore the gospel has caused you to be born again. Now he goes on. So let's keep going and see what he tells us. Therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Peter is now going to go on, and he's going to share this, like, the tale of two lives throughout this passage we're going to look at. But it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily lives that are a sinner, or are you saved, or is it, is it a life in the flesh, or is it a life lived in the spirit? It is more about, are you living assured and confident of your salvation, or are you living in fear and in worry and in doubt of the inheritance that is already yours. 
And he's encouraging a church. Because last week the writer of Hebrews was talking about encouraging a church that the people were being arrested and they were being, um, and they were having their homes taken from them in the writer of Hebrews' world where he was living. Whoever that was that wrote Hebrews. Peter's, the Peter's people are being executed. In fact, if you read the letters of 1st and 2nd Peter, he knows his time is coming. He actually says, Jesus told me I was going to be executed. I know the time is short. That's why I'm writing these letters. So in light of that, he's saying, put aside malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, etc., and long for the Word of God. Now, does that sound familiar? It should, because Paul, who was Peter's co-laborer in the faith that we've looked at a lot over the Advent season and now, He's in Galatians 5, what does he say? He, he makes a similar sort of tale of two lives. In Galatians 5, he says, the deeds of the flesh are evident. They are. And he, started, he lists 13 things. Most of them having to do with things like envy, malice, um, strife, bitterness, dissension. He's listing all these relational turmoil. And then he says, but, Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit, deeds of the flesh, you... What Peter says are malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy. He's saying, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things there is no law. It goes back to the conversation we had a few weeks ago about renewing your mind. Peter is telling us here, we can do, we can do the old way, verse 1. Malice, deceit, envy, slander, and be a bitter, angry person and walk around grumpy, or we can renew our minds with the truth of the pure milk of the word, so that you may be able to grow in all respects into salvation if you have tasted the kindness of God. Our invocation passage, Jeff read this, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see, oh, taste and see. Is the word of God something your appetite hungers for? David said that it was more precious to him than gold. It was sweeter to, them than, sweeter to him than honey. I will, I will resist getting on my soapbox. But guys, verse 3, where he says, if you have tasted the kindness of God, that's why my, my soapbox, for those of you that are relatively new here, is being, be reading and responding to God's word every day. Right? The, the, the reason I emphasize that so much in my own life is for, for lots of reasons, but one of them as it relates to this week's message is, guys, my desire to be in God's Word every day is living proof that I'm His. Because prior to being His, for the first 24 years of my 50 years, I didn't care about His Word and didn't want to be in it. So now when I look and I go, man, when I start to have those times of like, I don't know, I, I really messed up big, and, 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 and I can look and I go, yeah, but I, I would not hunger for the pure milk of the Word of God. I wouldn't get up extra early every day just to meet with my Savior if I were not His. So today's question is, how do we know, how does knowing we're His help? The first thing is, He changes our appetite, and we love it. We can't get enough of it. We stop looking at the world's food and we start looking at his word for our food. The second point that he makes is he builds with better material. He builds with better material. Look at the next couple of verses. It says, And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to 
to offer a spiritual to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Guys, that word coming there, coming to him in verse 4, it is in the active ongoing tense and voice. It, it is, Peter's not talking about, and you came to him unto salvation. He's saying coming to him day after day, moment by moment, constantly coming to him continually is what that word means. Should, should, should flavor how you see the passage. Too often in, in, in our journey with Jesus, we say, this is when I raised my hand, I prayed a prayer. This is even when I really became a spirit-filled, spirit-sealed believer in Jesus. And now I'm a rock, and we left Jesus back there. We left the gospel back there. And what Peter's saying here is, no, come to him. Come to him. Keep coming to him day by day, moment by moment. Coming to him as a living stone. He is the stone. Peter is now making no doubt that, that what we talked about, like why, how I usually start each message with the scene in, in, in Matthew's gospel where Jesus is walking with his disciples and he says, who do the people say that I am? And, he said, and Peter says, you are the Christ. Peter is now in this letter saying, he is the stone. And upon this rock I will build my church. What is the rock that, Jesus, or that Peter's talking about, or that Jesus is talking about to Peter and Matthew? He's talking about this stone, a living stone that was rejected by men, Jesus Christ. He is proving his point here. But get this, guys. Jesus was rejected. Say, right there it says so. And we know that. You read the Gospels, you know he was rejected. Did, did his re He's still being rejected. Did his rejection make him any less victorious? Did his rejection make him any less God? Did his rejection make him any less anything? No, because he can never be less anything. So let's stop for a second and go, when I'm out and, I'm telling, and I tell somebody that I'm a follower of Christ, and they give me the, the face palm, which often happens, does that make me less? No. It makes me blessed. Right? Because what does Jesus say in Matthew 5? Blessed are you when you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Blessed are you when they say all kinds of bad things about you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven is going to be great. But we don't feel that way in the moment. Right? The enemy uses the rejection that we feel from family members, from people out in the neighborhood, wherever it is. He, he uses that rejection that we feel to make us start to doubt. Well, well, maybe we're the ones that are wrong. And we'll get to more of that here in just a minute. Our struggles and our rejection are actually proof of our faith. Our struggles and in, in our rejections in, in, in living out following Christ, we should see them differently. Instead of going, man, that stinks. We should go praise the Lord. It is, it is proof that I am a living hope. And that's where Peter goes next in verse 5. He says, and you also, so Jesus is the stone, you also as living stones, that's the yah that's the, uh, that we talked about last week. Right? The writer of Hebrews talks, he, he, he very intentionally used the words when he talked about let us gather together, let we can approach the throne of grace. He was using this y'all. Not, not you and I, but all of us together can do this. And, he's, and, G, and Peter's saying the same thing. All of us together as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house. What is that? Who does that sound like again? Paul. Right? We just looked at it. 
Therefore, Romans 12.1, Therefore, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Peter's just saying, therefore, all of us, because we're connected to the cornerstone, are going to fit together as a house, and this is worship. Because worship is not music. We worship God in music. What we are doing right now, that's part of why we don't say, hey, we're going to enter into a time of worship. And then, and then have just the music. Because what that would be implying is that so somehow worship stopped when I walked up here? I hope not. Right? Worship is any time that we have our minds, attention, and hearts, affection set on God, praising him for who he is and what he's done. And that is true in our music, prayerfully, and it was this morning, thank you guys. And that is true in our, in our teaching, prayerfully, and that is true in our fellowship in the one another's. It is true in our time of prayer together. It is all an act of worship. We are living stones. How? We'll go all the way back to the first, first part of the letter. Look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. Again, we're talking about how we get our identity. Here's your identity right here, according to Peter. Blessed be the God, I'm reading verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God of our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to great, his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That's your identity, guys. Regardless of what's going on in your life right now, regardless of the bottom line of your bank account, regardless of the condition of your marriage, if you are his, that's you. You have received an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, that will not fade away. Guys, I get envy. I get seeing people driving nice cars and living in nice homes and having nice stuff, and there's that part of me in my sinful flesh that goes, man, maybe if I had stayed in education and I was now the superintendent of whatever school district, I would be making more money and I'd have all those things. And to what end? And to what ultimate end? My life would be so much poorer than it is now. Because I wouldn't have you guys in my life. You are the tangible grace gift of God to me. Sometimes I don't maybe act like it. But it's true. We are born again to a living hope by, we just read it in verse, verse 23 of chapter 1, the living and enduring word of God. Who is the living and enduring word of God? Jesus Christ. The living and enduring word of God. But let's keep going and look at how he builds with better material. So we're back in chapter 2 and verse 6 through 8. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. Now he's turning back to that other life. But to those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. There's the importance of the word again. And to this doom, they were also appointed. When he says in verse 6, and those who believe in him will not be disappointed, in the Greek, that's actually, there's actually four words there for not. Peter is driving this point home. It's a double, what we would call in English a double negative. 
So, so if you were to read that literally, it would say that those who believe in him will never, no, never be disappointed. You will never, no, never be ashamed. He's saying when your trust is in him, there is no going back. There's no do-over for God. There's no, oops, God's gone. I made a mistake on that one. I'm taking my salvation off of him. No, that does not happen. We are his, yeah, praise God. We are his and, and his no, regardless. Guys, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Think, think about this for a second. We're going to get there at the end, hopefully. Jesus dies on the cross when? 2,000 years ago. When was, I'll just use me as an example. When was Doug born? 1969. But wait a second. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I wasn't even born yet. Most of you are going, if, if you've been a believer, you're like, yeah, it doesn't really matter, Doug. That's good. Stay there. That's healthy. But, th- but for those of you that are questioning, wait a minute, how does that whole sacrificial cross thing, how does that affect my life? W- but what happens if I, if I continue in an attitude of sin now? Guys, if you're really his, and you're really sealed in the Spirit, it does not make you stop sinning. It does make you sin less and hate the sin that you're sinning in. But, but for me to continue in sin now as a 50-year-old doesn't mean that somehow God didn't die for those sins. How do I know? Because he died for all of them 2,000 years ago. He's not dying today and then again dying tomorrow for the sins that I'm going to commit tomorrow and then again dying next Thursday for the sins that I'm going to commit next week. But he doesn't have to keep dying. He died once for all. It is finished. That's victory. That's it. I should just say amen and be done. Okay. What is Peter doing in this part of the passage? Here's what he's doing. He's, pulling, he's intentionally pulling out passages from the Psalms and Isaiah from the Old Testament to prove a point. To prove the point we make here all the time. God's only ever had one plan of salvation, and it is through Jesus Christ. So he's going back to the Old Testament to say, guys, this is a promise we've known about all along, that Jesus was going to come, the Messiah was going to come, he was going to die for sin, and those who put their faith and trust in the cross of Jesus Christ will be saved, and those that don't, won't. It's been God's plan since the fall. That's it. It has nothing to do with our behavior. It has nothing to do with how, our, how good we are. It has everything to do with the grace of Jesus Christ. And Peter's pulling that point out of the Old Testament by, re- by referencing these Old Testament scriptures and saying, the cornerstone that was rejected is the anchor of our faith. Just like the cornerstone of a building back then was the anchor of the building and the place where it got out of its direction, he's saying the church, our, the, the body of faith, the anchor for our church, for the bride of Christ, is the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. We get our foundation from that. We get our direction from that. And that's why we're so hungry for the word of God. But guys, the world is screaming an anti-gospel message. The world is telling, here's, here's the scary part for us. Listen, listen up. The scary part for us now is not just Oh, you know, you Christians, that's a great way to believe, and if you want to believe that or not, you know, or that's, you know, I'm glad that works for you, or that, you know, that's true for you, or, guys, here's, here's, here's what the world is telling us now. The world is telling us, Christians, you are on the wrong side of history. 
Right? You, you because, because of, our, because of what, what the Bible teaches about the sanctity of human life, because of what the Bible teaches about marriages between one man and one woman for life, because of what the Bible teaches about things like gender identity, that it's chosen by God and we don't get to just decide what we want to be today. Right? That's God's word, people. Now those people that are struggling with those issues don't need our judgment, they need our love. We need to say, of course they're struggling. Of course they think that way. How can they not if they're not spirit-filled believers in Jesus? We don't tell them, clean up your attitude and your thinking and your behavior and then come to Christ. We show them the beauty that is our Savior and say, He will clean them up. He will get them thinking His way. But guys, we have to to recognize that what the, what the, it's going to get tougher. Jeff prayed it. It's going to get tougher before it gets easier. Why? Because the world is telling us that we are on the wrong side of those issues. Not only that, but we're on the, they're actually starting, it's actually turned in the last two years. We are on the immoral side of those issues. Why? Because they see this book as immoral. In light of the issues I just talked about, life, gender, marriage, and they see the teachings that are in this book as immoral. So, guys, I'm not just talking about the world. I'm talking about people that are professing faith in Christ. I'm talking about churches that are meeting right now, today, in America. What are they starting to do? They are drifting from the truth. It starts small. Well, you know what? Let's just get rid of the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is where most of that whacked out stuff is. So if we just, if we just unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament then we won't be as offensive to people. <gasps> what if Peter had had that attitude? We just read the Old Testament. I, 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 hate, I want to tell about those guys that think that. Guys, I, I hate to let you know a little secret, but you can't unhitch from the Old Testament because it's in the New Testament. On purpose by God. So, so how, how, guys, why I'm spending so much time on that is because it is not, we know, it's not getting easier to be a Christian, it's getting harder. The world is telling us, guys, and, 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 and the more the world screams it, and the more, and, and, and not just young people, but young people in this room, listen to me, this is part of why the Christian Club on Campus thing started, because, because the, the believers on Sunrise Mountain's campus wanted a place where they could gather together to strengthen each other in their faith, and there be a brighter light to shine to reach the campus. Because their friends, even friends of theirs that were professing faith in Christ, were, were living ways and telling them to live ways that were not consistent with the Word of God. That's why it's getting hard. That's, it's, it's not the, the, we, we blame the world. The world is telling us that homosexuality is okay, and the world is telling us this. But guys, the, the real damage is done when people who are professing faith in Christ, the real damage to our to our assurance of the Word is done when people who are professing faith in Christ are the ones looking at us going, well, you don't really believe the Bible teaches that, do you? You don't really believe the account of Adam and Eve in the fall and creation, which we'll look at a little bit next week, Lord willing. You don't really believe in a biblical view of marriage, right? Like, that was for them. Those are, those are professing Christians looking at your kids and us as adults going, guys, oh, come on, come into the, come into the new millennium. You, know, you guys are on the wrong side of morality. You're on the wrong side of history. And it's going to be proven someday. You're just like Hitler. What? 
Guys, that mess that happened in New York City is just like Hitler. We have to renew our minds with the truth of who he tells us we are. So how do we know, how does knowing we're his help? Let's get back on track, Doug. He adjusts our appetite and we love it. He builds with a better material and, we're, and we know we're part of it. Regardless of what the world says, regardless of what some of our friends might say, we know we're his. And then he assures us of our true identity. He assures us, assures us of our true identity. Look at the next couple of verses. Verse nine, some of you probably can quote it because I say it so often here. Verses 9 and 10. But you, but you the church, not you Israel, but you the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? That So that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into the marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you did not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. Guys, if you don't know that passage, I'm telling you, write it down on a, on a, on a three-by-five card and put it in your car, put it on your mirror. It's, it's, our memor, it's our memorization passage out of the toolkit this week. Guys, burn it on your brain. Because again, the world is telling us just the opposite. But you're wrong, but you're this, but you're that. I don't care what the world's telling me, but I am a child of God. I am a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, because he's called me out of the darkness and the filth that I was in, into his marvelous light, because he's given me his grace and called me his own. Isaiah 43, Mark prayed it in our prayer time this morning, the free service prayer, which by the way, you're all invited to. Nine o'clock, we meet. Come join us. He prayed it, Isaiah 43. I hope you had the passage right, Mark. Isaiah 43, 1. He says, God looks down and he says, you are mine. That's all that should matter. I know, I know in, the, in the reality of our lives, it's not that easy, but guys, that's why we have to renew our minds. It has always been God's plan to have a people for himself, that he would display himself to them, and that he would display himself through them. That is God's plan. That's what Peter's talking about here. You are a chosen race that I might display myself to you so that you might proclaim me through you. That's what Peter is telling us here. We are a set-apart people. Our, our, ide our identification, where we get our identification, is not by looking inside ourselves. Sorry, Oprah Winfrey. It's not, by, it's not by like listening to what other people say about us. Sorry, television and advertisers. It's not what I see on Instagram. It's not what I have on Snapchat. It is what Jesus says we are. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, he tells us that he has made us a kingdom and priests. That's your identity. You are, whether you believe it or not, if you're his, you are a kingdom and a priest in the kingdom of God. Guys, sometimes it's easy to read stuff like this, like in the Bible, and go, okay, well, it was easy for Peter to say he walked with Jesus. Guys, I don't care how hard your life is, it was not as hard as what Peter was going through. He was watching his friends get massacred. None of us here have dealt with that. There are Christians around the world that deal with that, but we haven't. So when he writes this, he's not speaking in theory. This is not just theology. This is real life for him. Because some of us are sitting here right now, and there have been seasons in my life where I would read this, and I go, yeah, but God, you don't know what I'm going through. 
You don't know what, you don't, you don't understand how hard this is, Peter. Peter's like, man, brother, come on, suck it up. Wait till you see one of your friends get crucified, burned alive. Then we'll talk. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, you can turn there if you want, 1 Peter 5.10. End of the letter that we're in right now, 1 Peter 5.10. But you, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all comfort, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, he will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Brings us to our last point. So how does knowing we're his help, he adjusts our appetite, we love it, he builds with better material, we know we're part of it, he assures us of our true identity, and we embrace it. We don't just acknowledge it, but we actually embrace it. And then the last point Peter makes is he gives us a bigger purpose. He gives us a bigger purpose. Look at the last two verses we're going to talk about today. Verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing that they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. He makes the point again in chapter 3 when he says, be prepared to give a defense for those who ask you, so you're living a life that is worthy of being asked, man, what is it about you? What is it that you've got? Because that, that, I want it with gentleness and reverence. That's 1 Peter 3, well, it's right here, 3, 15. But back in our passage, beloved. That word beloved there means those deeply loved of God. It actually has as its root word agape, which is the deepest form of love. So he's saying, beloved, those of you who are deeply loved of God, who, oh, by the way, are also aliens and strangers. He's like, guys, well, here's what you've got to remember. This world is not our home. Right? The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 5, what's he say? They were looking forward to a heavenly homeland. That's how we survive and persevere and deal with the struggles that we have. We realize we're not living for here and now. We're living for there and then. So he's like, you guys are, we are aliens and strangers here. We're just passing through. We're like E.T. Oh, no. See, I, I just dated myself there, didn't I? That was big when I was young. Most of you are like, E what? E.T., that's a show on television. No, that's a bad show. Don't watch that show. I don't even know if it's still on or not. How I got off in that, I have no idea. And then the last part here, as he says, and this is important, it's kind of how we're going to wrap up our time these things war against your soul. Guys, we are, in a, we are in a battle for souls. We are in a battle for souls. And we're going to talk about that battle in the spiritual realm in two weeks when we look at spiritual warfare. But we have to remember that we only find our soul rest in Jesus Christ. It's what I prayed at the beginning. Right? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And how does he finish it? And you will find rest for your souls. We say this a lot. Behold, believe, belong, become, behave. Guys, our tendency is to focus on our behavior. We are behavior modification specialists, personally in our own lives and trying to do it to each other. And so when our behavior is good, we think God loves us. And when our behavior is bad, we think it's not. We, we think God doesn't like us because that tends to be how we interact with each other. But we have to get past all that and go, no, the first call of the Christian is not behave, behave, behave. It's behold the beauty that is Jesus Christ. And as we behold him, 
we are able to live a life, to Peter's point, that allows other people to behold him in us. We can't just go, Right? We cannot white-knuckle this thing into existence. The only way we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us, the only way we can live those excellencies is if we model them by the power of his spirit. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts in Zechariah 4.6. But guys, if we believe that, if we believe, if we believe, if we believe that regardless of what the world says, regardless of what your friends say, remember I made you guys all say this a few weeks ago, I am who I am because the great I am says that I am. If we really believe that, I am who I am because the great I am says that I am. If we really believe that, then here's how you'll know you really believe that. What people say and do or don't say and do or what people post on your Instagram or don't say on their Instagram or what people message you or don't message you won't really matter anymore because the praises of God last forever. That's how you'll know you believe that. When, when you can be completely offended and not feel offense because you're like, you know what? I just don't get my worth by what you think of me. You'll know you're finding your ID in the right place. I'm going to ask the music team to come up and we're going to take a minute to respond to his word here and, and what is his will for us. But as we do that, I want to ask you guys a question. I want, well, I want to ask the, today's question a different way because here's how the enemy asks today's question. Why does the enemy, Satan, want us to doubt who we are in Christ? Why does the enemy want us to doubt his love, want us to doubt grace. It's because, it's because the enemy does not care. The, listen to me. Look. Look at me. One, two, three eyes on me. The enemy does not care if you have well-behaved children. He doesn't. The enemy does not care about your behavior. You can walk around like Jesus all the time. He wants to keep you from Jesus Christ and the cross. That's it. That's his goal. We have to get past that. The enemy wants to keep us from the cross. Because that is the only way we find our victory. And here's his best goal. Or here's his best um, way of doing that. You're not any good. Who are you? Who are you to get up there and teach in front of all those people? Who are you to sing in front of all these people? I saw what you did yesterday. I, I know what you're thinking. I see your behavior when they don't see. Guys, here's how he keeps victory there. Here's, we all hear that voice. Here's how he keeps victory there when we try to hide it. Guys, if, you hide, if you're trying to hide or ignore or, or, just, or just deny your sin, you're holding on to it. And the enemy lives in that clenched fist. Let it go. Guys, Jesus died for all of our sins 2,000 years ago, past, present, and future. He hung on the cross, and he said, it is finished. So just bring it to him. Just lay it down, 
And then, guys, here, here's the thing. Instead of, instead, of, instead of living in the fear and the doubt that, that, that hiding your sin causes, you will feel the victory that is yours in Christ. Let's pray. So, Father, I thank you, Lord, for the truth that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is an ongoing thing. That's not a one-time deal. We are coming to you. As living stones, we are coming to you, the living stone. And we are laying it on the altar of your salvation so that there we would find the victory that you've already paid for. Our God is for us. We need only look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for the grace, the never-ending grace that flows from there. In Jesus' name, amen.